Church, we have been studying the Gospel of Luke now for some time. Uh, Last week we started Luke chapter 12, and I made the case that Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1, all the way to 13 verse 9, is one long connected section. It's like 70 verses of a long connected section. It's all Jesus walking with this massive crowd, and he's, he's interacting with them about all sorts of things. Um, so he starts off uh, with this warning, beware the, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he uh, gets into all sorts of different conversations with them. But there's a lot of warnings that come. Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of greed. Those things won't, you know, last to the end. They won't take care of you. And so we sort of artificially cut the chapter in half. Um, my preference would always be to do one connected section together but we would have spent like 30 minutes reading scripture aloud last time and then you know I wouldn't have cut any of my sermon anyway so um, so we cut it in half but if you have you know if you're looking at your bible I would encourage you to read the whole section together we're going to start in 1235 today but it there's no like break from verse 34 to 35 even though your bible may have a new heading in that section Jesus keeps going but the second half of that starting at 35 all the way to 139 which is what we're going to look at today is still a long and complex section and Jesus seems to be focusing in on this theme of you know a the, uh, the surprising return of the Son of Man and what, whatever he means by that. And so as he's talking about it, he's got, he uses several stories. He kind of layers one story upon another and weaves them in, and there's some surprising, sometimes scary imagery. So because it's a long section, I'm going to do it a little different than I normally do it. Um, I'm going to do it a section at a time of this long speech. And I'll just make a few comments, hopefully not too many, about each one. And uh, and we'll try to hold it all together. Uh, you can let me know if that was, if doing it this way was helpful or made it more confusing. I genuinely want to know afterwards. So let's start in uh, chapter 12, verse 35 to 40. Jesus says, get dressed for service and keep your lamps burning. Be like people waiting for their master to come back from the wedding celebration so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those slaves whom their master finds alert when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, have them take their place at the table and will come and wait on them. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night and finds them alert, blessed are those slaves. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, speak to us. Have your way in the preaching of the word today, Lord. Amen. Now, the main point of this little section is made plain by Jesus at the end. He says, the Son of Man is coming, so be ready. 
but what's he talking about? Like, what is that about? Let's touch on a couple details. Number one, who is the son of man? I'm just going to get really simple. And maybe it's obvious, but Jesus is talking about himself. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Uh, you know, the disciples say, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're, but Jesus most often uses the title, the son of man. He almost never calls himself the Messiah, although he doesn't deny that he is the Messiah. That title, the Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was a political prisoner in Babylon who had a bunch of crazy dreams. In one dream, he sees all of these terrifying beasts who are like battling each other and taking control of everything, and then the scariest beast at the end. And then all of a sudden in the dream, he sees this figure that he describes as one like the Son of Man who defeats the beasts and is given a throne next to the Ancient of Days, which is God, where he is worshipped by all people. When Jesus says he's the Son of Man, he's claiming to be that guy. It's astonishing. He will defeat the beasts and be exalted to the heavenly throne. But Jesus adds to what Daniel says. If you want to go check Daniel 7, Jesus adds to it. He says the coming of the Son of Man will not just spell the defeat of the beasts, it will include this assessment, this judgment of the people of God, which is kind of scary. And his question is, are we ready? Are we ready for that to happen? Now, in this little story Jesus tells about the master returning, there's one detail that I always missed until I was studying it for this, to be quite honest. Uh, it's it's a detail that seems unnecessary. It seems like the point is, be ready because the master's coming and you don't know when he's going to come. Be ready. But Jesus says, be ready because the master is returning from the wedding celebration. Not just a wedding celebration, the wedding celebration. The, the, and this isn't the first mention of weddings by Jesus in Luke. You know, back in chapter 5, some people asked Jesus, uh, hey, why did the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said, well, the, the friends of the bridegroom wouldn't fast while the bridegroom is with them, would they? Like, he's identifying that he's the groom in some wedding. And so now in this story, the master is away at the wedding. Interesting. So to make sense of this, we need to know a little bit about a Jewish wedding, all right? So because, the, you know, our wedding traditions in this culture are a little bit different, uh, we need to know about a Jewish wedding. There's three parts of a Jewish wedding, and I will surely mispronounce each one, all right? Uh, but there's, that's how they're spelled. Um, so the first part, the shidukin, uh, is not what the guy says in Street Fighter for all you video game people. Um, sorry. Uh, this is the time of mutual commitment. This is where the legal arrangements are made in that culture by the family, by the parents of the bride and groom. It's the betrothal where two people are promised to each other. And in preparation, sometime during this phase, both the bride and groom go through a ceremonial cleansing in uh, Jewish culture called a mikvah, which later became uh, baptism for Christians. They were ceremonially washed. 
All right, so that's the first phase. The second phase is the erusine. This is where the bride and groom, uh, they enter into a, a ceremonial wedding canopy. They sign the marriage contract. The groom would traditionally give the bride something of great value, sort of a down payment. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm making this commitment to you. Uh, and uh, and, and it's, it's a celebration. There's a party at this moment. And, uh, you know, all the people would be there. They'd be feasting. But the bride and groom would not move in together. They would not consummate the marriage. This isn't the beginning of their family. Right after this moment, the groom leaves. And he returns home. And he's gone. Sometimes, traditionally, in that culture, it would be for about a year. But it could be an unknown amount of time. And he's preparing his home to bring the bride back with him. And she's preparing her life. And uh, she's supposed to be waiting, expectant, waiting for him to come. He could show up at any time. And so traditionally, it's, there's this expectation to keep her, her lamp burning, uh, to be ready while the groom is preparing for his return. And then, of course, is his return. This is the third part, the Nisuin. When the arrangements are complete, the groom comes back. She greets him with her lamp burning, and, and now is the bigger party. And it's a moving party. Like, he'll take her, they'll go back into the canopy, they'll complete the marriage vows, um, and then he will carry her, so to speak, to their new home together, and their lives will join together. They'll begin a family. So Jesus starts this story saying, keep your lamps burning. Then he says the master is away at the wedding, at the marriage. What, what is he saying? He's saying you listeners are his bride. That's what he's saying. When the master comes back, and no matter what time it is, he throws a party right then. It's not an after party from the, from the wedding ceremony. It is part of the wedding celebration. It's, it's phase two. It's a joyous moment. All right? And we need to be ready for it. Now Jesus throws in this thing about a thief and, and basically says, yeah, so you don't know what is going to happen. So you've got to be ready for it. All right, let's continue looking at verse 41 to 48. Then Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? The Lord replied, well, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his household servants to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds at work when he returns. I tell you the truth, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave should say to himself, my master is delayed in returning, and he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat, drink, and get drunk, then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not foresee, and will cut him in two, and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or do what his master asked, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know his master's will and did things worthy of punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. 
This also is the word of the Lord. So Peter asks a question after that story. And in response to Peter's question, Jesus kind of twists the story a little bit. And it's not a fun twist. It's a scary twist. Peter's question, if, if you buy what I'm selling about it being about this wedding ceremony and the bride, Peter's question is, are we the special ones? Is that for us? Are we the ones that the groom is returning for? Are we the special people who get to party with the master of the house? You know, are, is, is that, Peter might be talking about the 12 disciples. He might be talking about the people of Israel. You know, are we the special ones? So Jesus messes with the categories of the story. Before the hint was maybe you're the bride, now the suggestion is to listen as sort of a manager of the household. You're asking who you are in the story, Jesus says, but I'll ask you, who is the faithful and wise manager? Peter and the disciples constantly want to know, do we get special treatment? They constantly want to know that. That's very natural. I like asking that question. I love getting special treatment. And Jesus constantly responds with, no, you give special treatment. This is how you understand this story. Don't be like the Pharisees who we talked about in the first bit of chapter 12 who use their position to receive special treatment, to get social standing and comfort. Use your position, whatever it is, to serve, to serve. Okay, so we need to bring the two layers of this story together. First, Jesus says, keep your lamps burning and be ready, but he doesn't say how until Peter asks the question. And then he answers how we be ready. We be ready. The way we keep our lamps burning is by serving one another. That's how we, that's, that's how we be ready. We can easily become enemies in the absence of the master. We can be angling for position, angling for who has more, who has more comfort, who has the rights. Jesus says, no, serve one another. We are to emulate this master. Remember in the first telling of the story what the master does when he comes home? There it is in verse 37. I think I, think I have it. Yeah, look. Blessed are those slaves whom their master finds alert when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve and have them take their place at the table and will come and wait on them. He is a serving master. I mean, this is how Jesus will describe himself at the end of Luke. In chapter 22, he's going to say, for who is greater, the one who is seated at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is seated at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That sounds nice, but don't forget how scary that little section was. Like, people get chopped in half in that section. Right? I mean, it's scary. Serving or not is a matter of life or death in Jesus' mind. The more information 
and, and, and influence he has entrusted to you, the higher your standard, you are called to use all of it to serve. Jesus and his followers consistently, and Jesus consistently warned his followers that those who have much will be severely judged. This is what the rest of the New Testament emphasizes. The book of James says, you know, not many of you should want to be teachers because you'll be more severely judged. It's a terrifying statement for people who do what I am literally doing right now. We can't take it lightly. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Friends, you are part of the generation and culture of people who have more influence and more access to more information about what Jesus said than any generation in history. Guess what? It's not just me who's on the hot seat. Maybe I'm a little bit more. But you are too. We should be very wary of filling our heads with all kinds of exciting insights without turning it into service to our neighbor. The scary stuff will continue. Listen to the next section. Verse 49. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is finished. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, there will be five in one household divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord too. Yeah, we're doing that every time, by the way. switches from stories of masters returning to some intense imagery. Fire, baptism, division in the household. What's going on here? What do we make of these? Now, with fire and baptism, we're bringing together, you know, water and fire, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, and, and we need to think back to these two stories. In the first telling of the story, the master returns from a wedding celebration. He's more like a bridegroom. In the second one, the master returns, and he's more like a judge. In fact, he brings severe judgment on his servants. And in the Bible, fire almost always represents judgment. It almost always does. But what is Jesus saying when he's talking about baptism? Well, remember, he's just made reference to a marriage. Maybe he's talking about that, that cleansing, that ceremonial cleansing that happens before the wedding. But for Jesus, that ceremonial cleansing, anytime he mentions it, it's about his death. In fact, if you read the rest of the New Testament, they talk about, you know, when we are baptized, we are baptized into the death of Christ with him. That's what it represents, his death on the cross. Now, um, okay, so he talks about fire, he talks about baptism, and then he talks about division. 
And it's like, it doesn't sound Christian. It doesn't sound Christ-like. Yeah, I've come, you know, because of me. Families are going to turn on each other inside the house. This is what's going to happen. Now, what is Jesus doing here? I don't think he's necessarily tearing families apart on purpose. He's rearranging. A couple weeks ago, Shana preached on Luke chapter 11, and there's this moment in Luke, Jesus talking about like um, spiritual warfare, he's talking about deliverance, and all of a sudden this woman shouts out. It seems random, it's out of place. She says, you know, blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the breasts that you nursed from. In other words, your mom must be so proud. Your mom is really something because she's your mom. And and Shana explained so beautifully that Jesus' response, it, it's not to diss his mom, because he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He's not dissing his mom there. He's rearranging how blessedness happens. In the Jewish culture, especially for women, identity was through whatever your family was. That's it. You were subject to that. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no blessedness for man or woman, no matter who, is based on your response to the word of God. That concept will bring division. Why? Because families don't take lightly to being reorganized and rearranged. We don't just sit happily by and let that happen. And, and, and the way in which Jesus rearranges us messes with all of our standards for what is right and wrong. Whenever in Luke, I, I want you to just keep, keep this in your mind. And when you're reading the Gospel of Luke, whenever Jesus says, hear the word of God and obey it, he is talking, he's referencing back to his first big sermon in Luke chapter 6. And the end of that sermon, he says, you, like, effectively says, you've just heard the word of God and you need to do it. What was the word of God? Love your enemies. That was the point of the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in the book of Luke. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Lent to those you don't expect anything back from. Love your enemies. That's the calling card of Jesus' kingdom. Love your enemies. And, and you can make no mistake, it, we maybe can't really understand this because we're not in like a place of political, you know, international conflict where we're threatened every day. But if you love your enemies in a culture like that, you are, you are spitting in your family's face. Could you imagine a Jewish family oppressed by the empire of Rome hearing what Jesus says, and one person in the family says, all right, I'm going to go out and love and serve the Romans. How dare you? How dare you? As soon as we do that, there, that creates division in our family. It disrupts the natural order of things. There might be no faster way to lose your friends and family than to love your enemies. Why? Because we bond over those who we're against. It would feel like a betrayal. All right, let's try to bring all this together again. Jesus is on his way to his death. This whole talk is on his way to Jerusalem. He is preparing to die for his enemies. That's divisive. 
Jesus' listeners have been called to love their enemies, and just now they've been called to serve one another while their master is away. If Jesus is the master, he's away making legal arrangements for a marriage. And that wedding is is where he will be bound together in beautiful matrimony with his enemies. That's divisive. That's messy. The whole thing is a fire that rips through all of our norms. It calls Jesus' followers to put ourselves in the incredibly vulnerable position of sacrificially caring for those in our circle of influence, no matter who they are. The Gospel of Luke's written to this guy, Theophilus. I've created a persona for Theophilus. I hope it's accurate. I think he's a Roman government official. I think he's a Roman of influence. Theophilus has people who serve him. He has people who answer to him. And if he is to serve the other servants and love his enemy, it means his responsibility is to sacrificially serve and care for the Jews and the other conquered people that Rome has conquered. That's who it is for Theophilus. Who is it for you? Well, it's the people sitting in this room. It's the people in your classroom with you. It's the people you go to work with. It's your neighbors. Those are who you serve. And maybe especially the ones you don't want to. There seems to be something to that for Jesus. The ones we'd rather avoid are the ones he wants us to focus on. Will the master of the house find us ready? Who, if you served them, would cause your family to look askance at you? That's like, uh, you know, a foul look. All right, let's continue. Verse 54. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a rainstorm's coming, and it does. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and there is. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how can you not know how to interpret the present time, and why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way so that he will not drag you before the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. I told you he layers image on image and scary thing and story upon story, but it's all part of the same thing, all right? And here he's finally speaking to the crowd a a little bit more directly, although it feels like a sharp, you know, left turn from where he was. Fire, baptism, division. Oh, you know, and you can tell what weather's coming. Like, that seems like a strange twist. But at the start of this chapter, what we looked at last week, Jesus tells them, he opens this whole long speech, this whole long section with, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, after telling them, you're good at telling the weather, he just straight up says, oh, by the, you're already hypocrites. 
that thing I told you to be aware of, like too late, it has already happened to you. Why? Why? Because you can measure physical things. You can measure weather and money and social standing, but you are unable to measure spiritual things. If they saw a rainstorm coming, they'd make preparations, but they don't see the Son of Man coming in Jesus. They don't realize what's happening. Okay, it's time to ask the question that maybe is stirring in your mind. Maybe it's agitating you. Is this about the end times? Is this about the return of Christ? Is this, you know, are we supposed to understand? Are we supposed to be able to read the signs of the times and figure out what represents what and, you know, who, what president is and some, you know, biblical imagery? And is that what this is about? We make systems out of these things. We write books, you know, that, that hasn't happened in a while, but, you know, really popular books in generations past were the late great planet Earth and left behind, you know, these books that systematize all of this stuff and, you know, and tell us what signs to look for. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't. I don't think he's talking necessarily about end times and all of that stuff. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And he's told them that a couple times outright and they haven't understood. If someone was paying attention, Jesus has already said, you'd see the blind are given sight. The deaf can hear. The dead are raised. The kingdom and the end and the great judgment have arrived. That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, look, you guys, we're on our way to Jerusalem. There's thousands of people here. This is like something big is happening, but you're not quite reacting to it appropriately. The moment of decision is now. Earlier in this chapter, what we looked at last week, a guy shouts out, Jesus, help settle this deal with my brother who's hogging all of the inheritance. Tell him he's got to give my share to me, basically. They want Jesus to settle this estate dispute. His brother owed him. So what does Jesus do? He warns the guy against greed, which is like doesn't settle the problem at all. He just warns him against greed. Well, here he switches after the weather thing to talking about people going on their way to court and, and settling with your accuser. Otherwise, you're going to end up in, in debtor's prison. Is he returning back to the brother? Is he saying, yeah, after all, older brother, you should pay up. You owe and you should pay up. I don't think so. Jesus taught his followers to pray what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in, in the Lord's Prayer, it's forgive us our trespasses, for we also forgive our debtors. Jesus is saying sin puts us in debt to God and one another. In this story... We need to pay attention to a detail. If they make it to the judge, the person who owes is going to be thrown in prison. You know what that means? They can't pay. They don't have what they need to pay. He's telling them, you need to beg for mercy before you get to the judge. Beg for mercy. So we got to bring it together. If the people could interpret the present time, if they knew Jesus was the Son of Man, if they knew the, ta the time was now, 
they would be begging for mercy. Why? Because they have not been the faithful and wise managers. Because they have a debt that they cannot repay. They have not kept their lamps burning. But they're not getting it. They're not getting it. And you'll, t- you'll see from the next section how far from getting it they are. We're going into chapter 13. How you guys doing? You doing okay? Okay. 13.1. Now, if there were some... I'm sorry. Now, there were some present on that occasion who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Are those 18 who were killed when the tower in Salem fell on them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So we just talked about a a story about a debtor being thrown in prison, and that triggered somebody's mind about a messy current event. Pilate executed these Jews from Galilee, and he Taint, you know, he put used their blood in pagan sacrifices. It's horrific. It's so disturbing. And you know, you know, Jesus says, like, oh, do you think they deserved it? Do you think they're worse sinners? You know, and then he cites what we guess is another current event, some tower that collapsed and killed some people uh, in or near Jerusalem. You know, do you think they were worse sinners? And in both, Jesus simply says, No, unless you repent. You will perish like that. My goodness, it's that's scary. Early in chapter 12, Jesus said, Do not fear those who can kill the body and do no more. Fear the one whom, after the killing, can throw your body into hell. Chapter 12 is a rough chapter, you guys. Here he brings it to the point. You're in for a worse fate than death unless you repent. It's the same message. Make it right with your accuser before the judge throws you in prison. Oh, this is, this is heavy. I understand. And so Jesus wraps this whole scene up with a parable. And it's going to feel like, what on earth are you talking about? But listen to this, verse 6. Then Jesus told this big crowd this parable. The man had, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the worker who tended the vineyard, for three years now I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and each time I inspect it I find none. Cut it down. Why should it continue to deplete the soil? But the worker answered him, sir, leave it alone this year too until I dig around it and put fertilizer on it. Then if it bears fruit next year, very well. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. All right, this final parable, I said it might feel like a curveball. We've spent time trembling at the prospect of the master returning from either a phase of a wedding or returning and judging his servants, you know, and and he's likely to find us drunk and abusing the other servants. Um, We've talked about the lender who's calling in his debts. You know, I've made mention of dry chaff that will be burned in the scorching fire, you know, thrown into hell. The last thing Jesus says before this parable is, unless you repent, you will perish. I mean, it feels like fire and brimstone, doesn't it? And then he tells this parable. It's curious that the 
fig trees in a vineyard. You know, you grow grapes in a vineyard, not a fig tree, but anyway, that's Israel is often compared to a vine by the prophets and even by Jesus himself. What's a fig tree doing there? A fig tree brings my mind all the way back to Genesis. Because in Genesis, after Adam and Eve took the fruit they weren't supposed to take and realized that they were naked and felt shame, they plucked leaves off of a fig tree and sewed them together to cover their nakedness. Fig trees are more the symbol of Eden. They're the symbol perhaps of all people trying to deal with our shame. It's curious that the owner has inspected this tree for three years. Three years. Huh. Well, that's about the length of time of Jesus' ministry, spending three years going around uh, Israel from Galilee to Jerusalem, inspecting the tree, so to speak. But what's most curious of all is that this is not a story of terrifying judgment. This isn't the story of the arrival of a judge. This isn't the story where the fig tree gets chopped down and the soil can be used for the vines. This is the story of someone who intervenes on behalf of the fig tree. It seemed like it was about the tree, but all of a sudden, the the worker says, hey, let me tend to it. Let me fertilize it. Let let me work it so that it can be fruitful. Who works the tree so that it can be fruitful? Adam. That's our original job, you guys. God put Adam in the garden and said, take care of this. Cause it to be fruitful. That's our original job. It's the original son. It's the Imago Dei, the image of God. Who is this who cares for the fig tree? Well, he's the one who's serving the other servants. He's serving the tree in the master's absence. The the tree is the lamp that he's keeping lit and burning while he waits. A fig tree in the vineyard may be out of place, an invader, but the worker will love this enemy to make it fruitful. You know, I debate, this is such a long section and I knew it would be confusing. I debated, like, do I use, do I add this section in? Maybe we save this for later. But this brings all of it to a point. This is where Jesus gives us the good news after all of the scary news. How will he fertilize and dig around you? you fruitless fig tree. He will kindle a fire and undergo a baptism. Is this a parable for us or for everyone? Yeah, it is. Both. It's the story of Jesus. How does he fertilize the soil? With his own blood. With his own body. That's what makes the soil fruitful. He asks for a little bit more time to redeem the tree. Friends, all of these stories can sound really scary. They're a wonderful call to serve one another in the midst of really scary judgment. And yet we fail again and again until the worker of the vineyard comes and offers sacrificially to make us fruitful.
on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this and eat of it, all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the worker who is fertilizing the soil, the good and faithful manager, the one who will receive the great reward and share it with us. Jesus is literally giving his reward to you at this table. And this sets us free to serve one another, to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, because he did it first. He did it first. He took the fires of judgment. He took the division. He took it all so that we could be fruitful. Let's pray. Jesus, in this moment, if, uh, if anyone in this room is still feeling a little dizzy from all of these stories and all of the details, um, thank you that we're just like your disciples who don't even know who you're talking to when you're telling these stories. Thank you that we're just like the crowd who, who think maybe this story about a current event of tragedy has something to do with what you're saying. Lord, thank you that we're like them and that still, you do what's necessary to restore us, to restore our shame, to make us fruitful. And so, Jesus, in this moment, as we come to the table, we recognize the master who has come and dressed himself to serve and seated us at the table and is feasting with us. As we come to the table, we recognize you, Jesus, the good and faithful manager, the bridegroom, who's returned for his bride. Make us ready, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would invite you, brothers and sisters, to come and receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you. Bethany will place it in your hand. You can receive it like this, and then you'll dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's sing together as we come.